Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, March 9th, 2010. And yeah, I, I had to look at a computer calendar to figure that out. <laughs> oh, man. As I was opening up the show, I was like, uh, what day is it? <laughs> Quick, look! Yeah, you just lose track of time. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is a program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. You know, a lot of people think that their job is to stand over the Scriptures and to exegete the Scriptures or to stand in judgment over God's Word and tell you what is true and not true about what God's Word... No, no, that's not how it works. God's Word stands over you, and it gets to exegete you. That's all there is to it. Uh, firm believer in what some what we call verbal plenary inspiration. God inspired the very words of Scripture that are used by all the different authors to be written, and uh, God uses those words to um, basically exegete your life <laughs> and show you through His law that you just don't even come close to measuring up. By the way, same with me. By the way, don't even come close. Just it's not no not not even close. And so the purpose of God's law is to show us our need for a Savior, our complete wretchedness and spiritual bankruptedness. Is that a word? Um, <clears throat> well, it is now. It's spiritual bankruptedness. <laughs> you and I suffer from spiritual bankruptcy. We have no righteousness to author, uh, offer God uh, to even remotely come close to being able to meet a standard. And uh, God's basic solution is to, uh, well, do it all for us and give it to us as a gift in Jesus Christ by his shed blood on the cross for our sins, all of us. And so I don't stand here as some great moral example of, uh, well, no, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a beggar showing you where uh, where the food is. It's Christ, Christ. All right. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, funny enough, it's going to probably take a long time to do this whole thing. Grab something, gra- grab something to drink, get, get comfortable, fuzzy bunny slippers, a snuggie if you were into those things. Um, boy, that's an interesting product, isn't it? That snuggie, I was in the store uh, a while ago and they, they sell snuggies for your dog. 
And I'm thinking, what has the world come to? Anyway, uh, get yourself comfortable. This one's going to take some time. First segment is uh, will be the shorter, shortest of them. And it's uh, what the question is, what does someone who is mature in Jesus Christ look like? What does somebody who is mature in Jesus Christ look like? We're going to be listening to some audio from uh, a presentation given by John Ortberg at Fresno Pacific uh, University, I think, and on spiritual formation. In fact, I may be referring back to this series of videos uh, more often than I care to think about, but we're going to kind of ease into this whole spiritual formation talk because that's all the uh, rage right now. And John Ortberg has been working with a group of people to come up with uh, an, a, a computer application that's supposed to help you with spiritual formation and your sanctification. And it's called Monvi. And I'm not ready to discuss it in toto yet. Uh, instead, I, I want to kind of attack this thing as a very large burrito. Um, why? Because I like Mexican food. And what we're going to do is we're going to cut the burrito up into bite-sized pieces and kind of take it apart that way rather than try to shove the whole burrito in our mouth. Um, if you can do that, that's great. Um, but uh, I really do enjoy savoring my burritos one bite at a time. And by the way, I really like steak burritos. That's a different story altogether. How did I get onto that? Anyway, um, so we're going to be we're going to kind of begin to tackle this whole concept of spiritual formation that's being put out there by the Druckerites. Now, if you don't know what the, who the Druckerites are, the Druckerites are uh, those people who are connected to Peter Drucker, uh, you know, one way or another. And the, the, the unholy trinity, if you would, of the Druckerites would be Bob Buford of Leadership Network, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church, and Bill Hybels of Willow Creek. Um, the, those guys, more than anybody on the planet, have uh, really worked to take Peter Drucker's principles and create these different products that we now have known as uh, the uh, seeker-driven church, the purpose-driven church, as well as the emergent church. And the Druckerites, uh, one of them is John Ortberg of uh, Menlo Park uh, Presbyterian Church. And uh, we, if you, a few weeks ago, what we did is I did a segment called "Is uh, Dallas Willard a Christian?" And uh, we listened to John Ortberg and Dallas Willard. Well, Ortberg, um, he, you know, he's one of these guys that uh, the best way I could describe him is he sounds like he's theologically confused. And um, so, what we're going to do is, <clears throat> I'm going to ask the question: What does he actually? He asks the question. Orberg does. What does someone who looks like a uh, who is mature in Christ? What uh, What does someone who is mature in Christ look like? And we're going to listen to what's offered there on that video. And I would like to offer a counterpoint. And uh, and then we're going to listen to the, the segment number two is going to take us a long time. Um, Rick Warren uh, has a video up at the uh, the landing page that they have set up for the uh, their 2010 uh, Easter services that are going to be held at Angel Stadium there in uh, Southern California. And uh, they've got a video up called, What Does It Mean to Follow Christ? And uh, Rick Warren, boy, this, this is like a gospel train wreck. We're going to be listening to Rick Warren answer the question, What Does It Mean to Follow Christ? And uh, we're going to listen to that. And then our sermon review today is from Scott Hodge, uh, from the Orchard in Aurora, Illinois, entitled Experience, Julian of Norwich. 
And he's thinking, Julian of Norwich, who is that? Uh, Julian of Norwich was, uh, she was a uh, 14th century Roman Catholic nun uh, and a mystic and more than likely a universalist. And uh, we're going to be talking about these spiritual experiences and this mysticism that's just pervading uh, uh, churches that are in, you know, that are connected to the Druckerites, including Scott Hodge. Scott Hodge is one of the up-and-coming young guys who is looked to as one of the leaders among the Druckerite uh, groups. And uh, so I thought we would take a look at his uh, sermon on Julian of Norwich. I kid you not. We did, this is going to be all kinds of interesting. So lots of ground to cover. And uh, in in the our sermon review, by the way. One of the things we're going to talk about is what what's the proper where where does experience play into the Christian life, and uh, and we'll, this I think provides us an opportunity for ta- at least beginning to uh, delve into that pro- uh, not product that that concept. So with that in mind, we're going to uh, switch gears here and dive into the program proper. And segment one today again is entitled. Uh, what does someone who is mature in Christ look like? Here is John Ortberg from Fresno Pacific, speaking at Fresno Pacific University just recently, and uh, he, he's asking the question, so we'll let him frame it for us. Here's John Ortberg. Let's start with this. Um, because the uh, kind of the machine of ministry, just the need to crank out services and programs and talks can be so can kind of suck us into that rhythm uh now he's speaking to ministry leaders in fresno we can actually forget to step back and from a real high level view ask now why are we doing this why does it matter and how's it going in the most important way and i have been thinking a lot lately may come back to this in this afternoon session about a statement the Apostle Paul makes. He's writing to the church at Colossae in the first chapter. I think it's 27 and 28. And he gives what strikes me as kind of a creedal statement for people who do what we do. He says, We proclaim Christ, teaching and admonishing everybody with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And, and he says, uh, uh, for this I struggle, laboring with all his energy, which works so powerfully in me. And again, we may this afternoon come back to that. If, uh, in- okay, got to ask the question here. Um, notice that he's uh, taking, he's talking about spiritual formation. This is really, really, in the opening minutes of his uh you know, first of three keynotes on the subject. And uh, he's found a phrase in the writings of Paul found in Colossians chapter one about presenting people uh, mature in Christ. And he's trying to do it from memory. And uh, he, uh, immediately I've got red flags. Why? Because I want to know the context around that, those verses that he's quoting. The verses he says he's quoting from are from Colossians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Um, Actually, he quoted part of 29, which is interesting. But that's kind of mid-paragraph. And when we're talking about something that 
by the way, the Bible doesn't even teach called, quote, spiritual formation. This is some new technology, some new disciplines, some new program that we can sign up on so that, uh, you know, and that ministry leaders are supposed to be buying into to help, you know, basically present people as mature in Christ. And I think maturity in Christ is a very important thing. Uh, Don't get me wrong. That being said, we have to let the Bible define that term. We have to let Scripture shed light on what exactly does it mean to be mature in Christ. So let's, um, if you have your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 1. Okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to add a little bit of context to this passage. And... um, and you know because remember our three rules of biblical interpretation they are context context and context and you know it's it, i'm not saying that ortberg here is twisting the scripture i'm just not saying he's teaching it with any kind of precision at this point and uh, i want to make sure that as we die as we delve into this issue you know with john that we actually know what the bible's saying at this point i think that's important so colossians chapter 1 Starting at verse 9, I'm going to read from the English Sanctified Version. We read, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay, so already, I mean, we know that at the end of this chapter, he's going to talk, Paul talks about presenting people as mature in Christ, and here in the opening, the opening verses of Colossians chapter one, we're starting to already get a picture of really what that maturity in Christ looks like by looking at the the Christians in Colossae, even though they're struggling with the heresy there. By the way, at the time when Paul is writing this, and so. Uh, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might and all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of of sins. Okay. So notice here that uh Christ is the one saving and sanctifying if you would. And now Paul here is going to switch gears and not talk about the Colossians, he's going to talk about Christ. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Not you or I, but him. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, 
doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm willing I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. That's kind of an important piece of it. So he's here he's talking about a ministry that he's been given a stewardship, and part of that stewardship requires him to make the word of God fully known. I would think you can argue from this text, and I think probably successfully, that that really implies here the job of a pastor, somebody who's been given the stewardship of, of the ministry of God's word, that they're to faithfully dispense this by teaching the full counsel of the word of God. In other words, really teaching what the whole book teaches, okay, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We, him, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So here in this verse here, verse 28 Paul is talking about presenting everybody mature in Christ, but he's already giving us the means by which that occurs. That occurs through fully, basically uh, making the word of God fully known, okay? Preaching in, uh, the mystery that's been revealed, which is Christ, who is uh, who, Christ in you, the hope of glory, proclaiming him, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so here's the means by which it's done. It's done through the Word of God, through the teaching and the proclamation of the Word of God in order to present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. So here at the beginning of this uh, series of lectures on uh, on spiritual formation, John Ortberg's asking the question, You know, he's going to be asking the question here, what does someone who is mature in Christ look like? And he's talking about the importance of presenting people mature in Christ. But the very text that he is somewhat citing, and is almost selectively, actually gives the means by which people are presented mature in Christ. And that's through the labor of faithful pastors and, and ministers who are make the word of God fully known and proclaiming him and teaching everyone with all wisdom and, you know, and, and all wisdom from the scriptures. That's what, what this is all about. Okay, now I did all that foundation work so that we can continue here. Listen carefully. In some detail. But here's what I'd like to do. He, he uses this language so that we can present everyone mature in Christ. And obviously in our world, that's not the kind of language that gets used a lot. And even in churches, it sounds kind of religious or pious or something. So... You may already know everybody at your table. If you don't, take a moment and, and tell them your name and, and uh, something about yourself, where you live or something, whether you're one of the Mennonite brethren or cistern or, you know, whatever your background is. Um, but then say, 
that may not be technically correct. I'm not sure. Um, but, but then do this around your table. What does somebody who is mature in Christ look like? Paul okay, I'm going to point something out here. Here, at the, I mean, we're. This, by the way, this is only at the six-minute mark in the very first lecture, and he's asking the people that are there attending the lecture to get, basically group up and in their little groups answer the question, uh, what does somebody who is mature in Christ look like? Isn't that the wrong place to go? If you're going to answer the question, what does somebody who is mature in Christ look like, shouldn't you go and look at the scriptures? Doesn't God have something to say about this? There's uh, some level of subjectivity as on top of already this, you know, he's citing this thing about being mature in Christ, but he's forgetting that the very passage he's citing actually gives the means by which that maturity is worked out in the Christian's life. Paul says, you know, we teach and admonish with all wisdom so that we can present everyone mature in Christ. So if somebody is mature in Christ, what are they like? How do you know? Okay, so spend a couple of minutes at your table, make sure you know everybody, and then just think about that question. What does somebody look like if they're mature in Christ? Okay, I want to I hit the pause button on that conversation. Okay, you he, might want to. He's coming right back. You know, they, obviously, we don't have to listen to everyone. We're going to hear their answers, though, and I'm going to point something out. Continue it more over lunch, but here's what I'd like to do is take a moment and have people just say, and I'll write down, what are some of the primary characteristics that would let you know a person is becoming mature in Christ? What does that kind of person look like? All right, they would be somebody who finds themselves serving increasingly. What else? Joyful. joyful. This would be a, somebody mature in Christ, they'd be a joyful person. What else? Somebody that's teachable. What a great quality. What else? Loving? That's got to be... Teachable. Teachable. Uh, that basically means uh, not acting like you've... You know, your doctrine is right, I think. Core? Yeah, a gracious person. All right, what else? Humble. Okay. He's writing these on a on a easel. To, he's got a pay, pay, big, large piece of paper he's writing this on. You have to use just one word. <laughs> yes. No, 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 please. You have to use just one word. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Yeah, you know what I'd say with that one is there's a sense of identity. They have clarity around their sense of identity. Somebody who is mature in Christ has clarity about their sense of identity. Their humble, teachable, loving servant who is centered in their identity. Okay. And they know they belong to God. Yes. Yeah. Selfless. Authentic. Yep, definitely love is, is core. Okay, so I'm going to stop there right now. We could keep going. But it's very interesting. As I do this exercise with church leaders, you know, one of the striking um, dynamics is it's not rocket science. You know, somebody who's serving, joyful, teachable, loving, gracious, humble. They have a clear sense of identity that they belong to God. Uh, they're selfless. They're authentic. Now, when... Okay, I gotta... 
Okay, that's an interesting list. Okay, now here's my challenge question. Or point, if you would. If your definition of, uh, or your answer to the question, what does someone who is mature in Christ look like, would exclude the Apostle Paul and Apollos, uh, may I suggest that maybe you have a defective definition or understanding of what somebody who is mature in Christ looks like. Let me let me give you uh, an example of what I mean here. If you have your Bibles, open with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 18. And I want, to, I want you to take a look at a passage with me. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 28. And answer this question, okay? Is this an example of somebody who is, quote, mature in Christ, or is this childish, unloving, unhumble, unteachable behavior? We read, Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay, so uh, there's uh, maybe his bold speaking might be the fact that he wasn't fully mature yet, because obviously he didn't have quite the most accurate view of uh, baptism. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public debate, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was uh, that the Christ was Jesus. Is that the uh, is that are those the actions of somebody who is mature in Christ? Somebody who publicly refutes people of other religions in debate about who Jesus is? May I suggest that if your definition of somebody who is, quote, a a mature, uh, somebody who is mature in Christ excludes that as a valid part of it, then you probably have the wrong definition of what it looks like to be mature in Christ. Let me give you another example, if you would. Flip back a couple of pages. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the first few verses. We read, okay, Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were teaching false doctrine. This is a false gospel, right? And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, another translation says, had a sharp dispute and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So here we have Paul and Barnabas in sharp debate and dispute with these guys who were teaching false doctrine. By today's standard of uh, what somebody would believe is, quote, somebody who is mature in Christ and what they look like, by today's standard, would Paul be considered a mature believer at this point, a mature follower of Christ? Or is this just childish behavior on his part? 
and Barnabas's too, because it says that they got into sharp debate with these uh, Judaizers. Um, may I suggest that if your understanding of somebody who is, quote, mature in Jesus Christ does not also include somebody who would be willing to and and whenever necessary sharply dispute, dispute and debate people who are teaching false doctrine, that maybe you don't correctly have a, a, a biblical understanding of what it means to be mature in Christ. You see, let me put it this way. Today's politically correct version of what a mature Christ follower looks like, if it's if you're a guy, uh, you basically you're a metrosexual guy who's politically correct, who would never say a harsh word to a butterfly. Uh, you probably uh, you know secretly like the precious moments uh, figurines uh, of Jesus. And uh, the the gospel that you preach is pretty much that sentimental greeting card, castrati uh, type of gospel thing. And what I've noticed about the metrosexual, humble, teachable guys is that they really do think that anybody who f- believes in sound doctrine and would refute somebody who contradicts it, that those guys are immature. And yet the picture I see over and again in, in the scriptures is uh, is that th- those who are really mature in Christ, one of the one of the sure fruits of that is a willingness and a gutsy boldness to stand up for the truth in, in the face of controversy, even to the point of you know getting into sharp debate with somebody or publicly refuting somebody about who Jesus is, what he's done, and what's sound doctrine and what's false doctrine. Let me give you another example. I mean, if your definition of what it means to be mature in Christ uh, would exclude the Apostle Paul, then probably you don't have a a correct understanding of what it means to be mature in Christ. Galatians chapter 2, is this this behavior befitting a mature person in Christ, or is this childish behavior on the part of the Apostle Paul? We read Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when uh, Cephas came to Antioch, Paul speaking here, says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men, men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth, I said to Cephas in front of them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here you got this, the Apostle Paul, uh, he saw that the Apostle Peter was behaving in a way that was contrary to the gospel, and he rebuked him to his face in front of everybody. Is that the is that behavior befitting of somebody who is mature in Jesus Christ, or somebody who's childish and just doesn't quite get it? That you know, come on, we just need to be loving and get along with everybody. You know, if obviously Paul wasn't acting very humbly here, was he? He wasn't acting very teachably here, was he? You get where I'm going with this? I mean, then you got the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
writing these words to us in Titus chapter 1. Okay? Um, Let's see here. Um, Chapter 1, verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy or for gain, but hospitable, a lover of the good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Notice here, verse 7, talking about pastors, uh, that he must not be arrogant. Okay, This is an important part of it. Now watch what happens here. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Literally two verses before this, he says the guy shouldn't be arrogant, but he should be, you know, but that he should be know enough sound doctrine that he can rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. So rebuking somebody is not arrogant. Not in Paul's mind, not in the mind of the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words. We continue. For there are many who are insubordinate and empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they might be sound in the faith and not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. By today's standards, may I suggest that the, what the Apostle Paul is saying here, the, the advice that he's giving, I don't think there's any current prognosticators of spiritual disciplines that would be giving this kind of advice. They're talking about being mature in Christ, but the definition that they've come up with is based in subjectivity, not in the objective word of God. Well, I feel like a mature believer in Jesus Christ is somebody who's humble and teachable and 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 butter wouldn't melt in his mouth because everything he says is so smooth and silky and 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 just reminds me of a spring field full of wild flowers. And yet what Paul describes, you know, you know, basically to overseers who are supposed to be the examples of ultimate maturity within the Christian church, they should be so mature that they have the guts to rebuke those who teach things contrary to sound doctrine. I think the biblical definition of what uh, somebody who is mature in Christ looks like is way different than the subjective opinions and flowery sentimental sentimental ideals uh, being promoted by today's current spiritual uh, formations prognosticators. Just something I've noticed. All right, we're well past our first break, and I told you today's edition of Fighting for the Faith was going to take some time. Uh, when we get back, we're going to be listening to uh, Rick Warren. Kind of, it, We're going to call the segment The Gospel Trainwreck. You don't want to miss it. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quan Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheap O Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheap O Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. back. 
warning. If you think being spiritually mature requires you to hand in your man card, you got another thing coming. All right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that uh, we basically can't do what we do without your generous support and uh, and partnering with us financially. You can partner with us financially a couple of ways, and what you do is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. That's right, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you arrive there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One of them says, join our crew. Now, I know that sounds ominous because, you know, I'm a pirate. Uh, but think of it this way, is that when you join our crew, what you're basically doing is signing up for uh, contributing on a monthly basis a mere $6.95 a month to uh, to Fighting for the Faith. It comes out of your account automatically after you sign up. And when you join, uh, you also get access to our Pirate Cove, a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you go deeper in God's Word and in Christ-centered apologetics, theology, and doctrine. It's a great, great resource and uh, ha- access to our secret cove is our way of saying thank you uh, for supporting us. And, of course, if you would like to fill in the blank as to how much you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the other friendly button that says Donate, and you'll be taken to a screen where you can securely send in a contribution of your choosing uh, right there on the Internet. Of course, you can also do it the traditional way. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, Zip code 46038. Okay, this next segment I'm calling Rick Warren's Gospel Trainwreck. And uh, basically what's happened is is that Saddleback has set up a uh, a website that advertises their upcoming 30th anniversary Easter service to be held at Angel Stadium. Good news, the Jonas Brothers will be performing. Um, and, uh, and Rick Warren's going to talk about Saddleback. Um, Jesus and his resurrection might make a cameo appearance. We have yet to hear from Jesus' booking people as to whether or not he will be making an appearance uh, there or even be mentioned really um, at the Saddleback event. But uh, on that uh, webpage that's been set up to advertise this upcoming uh, 30th anniversary shindig that happens to be on Easter Sunday, um, Rick Warren has put up a webs- uh, a video, if you would, called... Uh, uh, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, a, f- a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Now, this is an important question, and any pastor worth his salt, not sure how much salt is worth, though, um, any pastor worth his salt needs to be able to answer this question clearly. Okay. Now, personally, I'm not a big fan of the term Christ follower because it kind of has an, it implies with it some legalistic uh, law kind of stuff rather than being a Christian. And I don't l- particularly like the term. We've talked about it ad nauseum here at the program. And just keep this in mind. Somebody uh, sent me a, a tweet and uh, a link to a blog post they put up that correctly pointed out that, well, for three years, Judas was a follower of Christ too. Just saying. Anyway, so here's Rick Warren. We're, this is going to take some time. So again, make yourself comfortable. We're going to go long into the second hour before we even get to the sermon review. So hang tight. But here's Rick Warren's answer to this question. Um, what does it mean to follow Christ? Hi, I'm Rick Warren, the author of The Purpose Driven Life and a pastor at Saddleback Church. Thanks for joining me. I want to talk to you about living what I call the better life. 
You know, as I've traveled around the world, I find a lot of people. What? <laughs> We're 24 seconds into this, and, you know, what, 10 of it was music. Something he calls the, quote, better life? I don't care what you call it, Rick. What does the Bible call it? The better life? Notice the salesman techniques here. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna make you have you basically what I, I think this is like an insurance sales pitch. We're gonna have you make a decision to become a follower of Christ based on what's in it for you. So right off the bat, hey, this is the better life. Really? Okay. Saying, I'm really living the good life. And what they mean is I'm looking good, I'm feeling good, I've got the goods. But I've also noticed that the good life is not good enough. That even when you have a lot of money, you have a lot of fame, you have a lot of friends, there's still an emptiness, an aching. You know something is missing inside of you. If I knew that there was a better life than simply the good life, I'd want to know about it. And I think you do too. You know, when I was a kid... Uh, as a baby, my parents fed me strained spinach. And because I didn't know there was anything better, I loved strained spinach. Now, today, I can't stand it. I think it tastes like turtle spit. In fact, I think parents who serve, uh, you know, strained spinach to their kids should be put in, in prison for uh, child abuse. It's terrible stuff. But I thought that's all there was to eat. And it was really pretty good until one day I learned there were strained peaches. And I thought that was pretty good until one day, as I got a little bit older, I learned about a thing called SpaghettiOs. <laughs> you could rate my life before and after SpaghettiOs. And as a kid, I loved SpaghettiOs and macaroni and cheese. And I thought, nothing's better than that. Until I got a little bit older, and I discovered a thing we have here in California called In-N-Out Burgers. Once you've had an In-N-Out Burger, there's no going back. Okay, now I gotta personally attest to what he's saying here is absolutely true. Um, we don't have In and Out here in the uh, Midwest. Oh, what a shame. Anyway, yeah, if you haven't had In and Out, if you haven't been, never been to California and had an In and Out burger, you are missing out. But that's kind of beside the point. So notice how he's kind of building up here that you know, apparently, I'm assuming the direction he's going at this point that Jesus is like an In and Out burger. I mean, it's way better than strained spinach. And see, don't you want to have In-N-Out rather than strained spinach? I mean, this is kind of a sales technique, isn't it? I could have spent my entire life eating strained spinach and not known that In-N-Out was out, out there in the world waiting for me. A lot of people are like that with life. They think that they're really living, but they're really just existing. You get up in the morning, you go to work, you come home, you watch TV, you go to bed, you get up in the morning, you go to work, come home, you watch TV, you go to bed. You get up in the morning, you go to work, you come home, you watch TV, you go to bed. And you go to a party on weekend think, man, I'm living. No, you're not living. There's a whole lot more. It's a whole lot more. And I want to ask you to just spend a couple minutes with me as I talk to you about what I call the much more, the better life. I've had the opportunity to talk with a lot of people over the years, and I've discovered that there are three words that describe many Americans. First, people feel exhausted. They say, Rick, I'm tired all the time. I'm overloaded. The so the reason I need Jesus is because I feel exhausted. Seriously? Pace is wearing me down. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that exhaustion leads to the second thing, which is emptiness. When you get exhausted, you say, what's the meaning of it all? 
why why don't I feel more satisfied? Why don't I feel more fulfilled? Fulfilled if I feel so so Jesus will not only help my exhaustion problem, but he will make me feel more fulfilled. He's crisp and clean with no caffeine. I mean, good. If I've got it so good, what's missing in my life? Why am I not more satisfied? And that leads to the third thing, which is people feel enslaved. I talked to a lot of people who say, I feel trapped, Rick. I feel trapped by my debt, by the recession, by my job. People feel, feel by the way, enslavement is a biblical category. But it's not that we're enslaved to debt or your job or whatever. You're in, all of us by nature are enslaved to sin, death, and the devil. We are dead in trespasses and sins. So I think Rick's kind of missing the whole uh, biblical thing here regarding what we're really enslaved to. I feel trapped in a relationship that I, I, I can't get in out of or I can't get on with. I feel trapped. So Jesus will help me get out of a bad relationship that I'm involved in, right? By a habit, by the expectations of others. Some people feel like a slave to their own schedule. What about slave to sin, death, and the devil, the biblical categories? Well, the truth is, as I said, the good life's not good enough. It takes more than looking good and feeling good and having the goods. What you need is the better life. And the better life... Unbelievable. What you need is the better life. That's what you really need. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to give you the better life. Um, uh, Question, what about the martyrs? You know, the people who've lost their life as a result of proclaiming Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and him crucified for our sins. Um, They didn't get a, quote, better, more satisfying life. They got dead. Comes from knowing your purpose. You see, a lot of people confuse living a full life with leaving, living a meaningful life. They're not the same thing. We try to find meaning out there through our possessions and through our passions and our position, through popularity, through status and success and salary, through our relationships and achievements. And, you know, we, we, we try all these different things, but it's one dead end after the other. And it's satisfied for a while. Don't, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of things that will make you happy. So living a purpose-driven life is the better life that Jesus came to offer you? Really? But they don't last. And the happiness goes away. Now, the better life that I want to talk to you about is not just an addition to your old life. It's not just something you add on. It's a brand new way of living. It's new and improved. (laughs) Usually when we see that phrase, new and improved, it's the old stuff just repackaged. But uh, let me just ask you this question. Knowing what you know now about your life, if you could start your life over, would you do it differently? Without a doubt, you'd say, oh, yeah, there's some things I'd do differently. I, uh, I'm i a novice. If I could do it over, would there be some things I'd do differently? Oh, man. Uh, what does this have to do with the cross? Golfer. Golfer. I, I don't. I don't play golf. I play at golf because I have almost no hand-eye coordination. And on top of that, I'm, I'm, I, I just, I just it, you know, the only reason I play it is for humility. I am terrible at it. 
but the first time I went out to play with a couple of uh, real pro golfers, uh, they taught me a new word. And I love this word. It was the word mulligan. <laughs> uh, wait a second here. I, I know a few things about golf. A mulligan is a do-over. Now, I want to point something out here, here about a mulligan. Let's say that um, I was playing with you know, three guys who were listeners to Fighting for the Faith, and we decided that we were going to uh, go to one of the local municipal golf courses and, and basically spend the afternoon playing golf as a foursome. Okay, And I got up on the first tee, and, uh, and the, 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 the tee shot requires me to hit the ball pretty much straight down the fairway, but not to hit it too far, because if I hit it too far, then it'll go into a creek, and then you know, then it'll be in the water hazard. Okay, but uh, because uh, you know, I being the golfer that I am, you know, I want to impress the guys that I'm playing with, and I decide, you know what, rather than doing the smart thing and then just taking out a three iron and putting it out on the fairway, I decide I'm going to pull out the big dog. You know, I'm going to take out my tailor-made driver, and I'm going to just hit it on the screws and just send that ball screaming down the fairway and to show what a great golfer I am, I am confident that after I really get into this thing that it's going to carry the creek that's, that's you know, in the middle of the fairway. Um, and then, as golf usually goes, um, all of my delusions of grandeur don't actually come about. I don't actually carry the creek. Instead, the ball lands in the creek in the mud, buried, gone, wet, and I, that's my tee shot. But one of the guys says, you know what, Chris? We like you so much that you know what we're going to do? We're going to give you grace. We're going to give you a mulligan. I would say, oh, this sounds so graceful. Now, does a mulligan mean that I get to go out and place the ball anywhere I want on the fairway and then hit it from there? No. A mulligan means I get to take out another golf ball, and then I've got to tee it up, and then I have a second chance to get the shot right. And um, if I put it into the creek again, <laughs> it's... Yeah, there's no other mulligans. Oh, and by the way, did I mention that mulligans aren't uh, they? They're that's cheating. It's not even a legal thing in the uh, in the rules of golf. In fact, if I were playing with golf purists, they'd all be looking at me going, you know, after my first shot that went in the creek, they'd be going, "Wow, that's terrible. Way, way to go. Way to start your round in the in the drink with a penalty shot." Of course, they'd be sitting there going, "Yeah, we're gonna beat Rosebro." So mulligans aren't legal, and if you do get a mulligan, if you decide that you're going to play using alternative rules for golfing, um, then the mulligan um, requires you to get it right the second time. It's not really grace at all because you've got to get it right the second time. Did I mention that you have to get it right? Let's continue. And I said, what's a mulligan? They said, well, that's when you get a do-over. You know, you blew it the first time, and uh, we're going to give you a second shot at it. We're not going to count the first one against me. We're going let to let, let you have it for free. Did you know that Jesus Christ wants to do that in your life? Really? Jesus wants to give me a do-over. 
See, I screwed up my life the first time, and but that that's okay. Jesus is going to give me a mulligan because he's a nice guy, and good luck. I hope you get it right the second time. This is not the gospel. He wants to wipe out all your bad shots, and then he wants to give you the power to do it the right way, power that you don't have on your own. Never forget when I was a kid, one time I had a sh- uh, this is not the gospel shop class, and I was making this beautiful table, at least I thought it was going to be beautiful, for my dad. It was a big surprise for Christmas. And it was made out of a giant piece of redwood burl. And I, I made such a mess of it. I, I didn't sand it right. I didn't shave it right. It wasn't level. I couldn't get it to balance. I put the, the, the stain on wrong, and it was too thick, and it was just a mess. And I, I was doing it out in a barn. And uh, we lived out in the country. And my dad one time came out and he walked in and he saw me there working on this project that I was actually building for him. And I just kind of burst into tears as a little kid. And uh, he said, what, what's the matter? And I said, well, Dad, I was trying to do this for you, but I made such a mess of it and I've just ruined it. And I'll never forget my, what my dad said. He, he didn't scold me. He said, well, I'll tell you what, son. Let's do it again. You can start over. And this time, I'll help you. That's exactly what God wants to do in your life. Really? Oh, that's good news. Jesus is going to help me get it right the second time. And what happens when I blow it the second time? Will he give me thirdsies? And if I blow it on thirdsies, will he give me give me fourthsies? This is not the gospel. This is a different gospel. He says, I want to give you a fresh start. I want to give you a fresh chance. I want to give you not just turn over a new leaf. I want to give you a brand new life. And that life is not something you can earn, not something you can deserve, not something you work for, not something you buy or bribe or bargain with God to get. It's simply a gift. So he's given me the gift of getting it right the second time. Yeah, lovely. Thanks. I've already blown it the second time, third time, fourth time. Uh, That's just today. You see, you were made for a relationship with God. Listen to this. You were made by God and you were made for God. And until you understand that, life is never going to make sense. You were not just made by God. He didn't just create you. He made you for himself. And until you understand that, you're never going to find the the key that fits the lock in your life. Now, here's the problem. God's perfect and we're not. I stopped batting a 1,000 a long time ago, and, and by the way, so did you. The- you were born not batting a 1,000. You were born dead in trespasses and sins. Notice how this presentation of the gospel basically sounds makes it sound like the good news is that God's going to give you, is going to help you get it right the second time. All because of his grace. Yay, God. Wow. Bible calls that sin. It, sin is actually an archery term. Did you know that? It means to fall short. It's when you shoot at a mark at a bullseye and it falls short. That's called a sin. And we've all sinned. I don't measure up to my own standards, much less God's. Can you explain to me, Rick, what some of God's standards are? You know, like, could you walk us through the Ten Commandments? You know, pull out God's law at this point? So there's a big gap between me and God, but God bridged that gap. And that's what he sent Jesus Christ to do, to be the bridge between you and God. And when he came to earth, he said, I came to do three things. He said, number one, 
I came that you might have life. And All right, twisting of John chapter 10, verse 10. Have it more abundantly. Jesus did not come to give you a religion. In fact, the Bible isn't even interested in religion. God isn't interested in religion. Religion is man's attempt to get to God. God is interested in a relationship with you. You see, the Bible says God is love. And the relationship he wants is, is basically the guy who gives you the mulligan because he's so graceful. And, but don't worry, he's going to help you get it right the second time. It doesn't say he has love. It says he is love. It is his nature. It is his character. It's who he is. God is love. You nor I would be able to love other people if it weren't for God's love. You see, the only reason there's love in the world is because God is love and the Creator put love in our hearts and gave us the ability to love each other. No one's ever going to love you more than God does. No man will ever love you anymore. No woman will ever love you anymore. Because God's love is unconditional. It's not based on who you are. It's based on who He is. Well, wait a second. If God's love is unconditional, then why was Jesus hanging on a cross? You see what I'm saying? Actually, God's love for me kind of sort of is conditional. It's conditioned upon the forgiveness of my sins. Won by Christ on the cross. Hmm. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what he's already done for you. It is called by grace. And when you do this, when you have this love in your heart, it gives you a new purpose in your heart. See, God's never going to love you any less than he does right now. And he's never going to love you any more than he does right now. He loves you completely. He's seen every moment of your life. He saw you take your first breath. He saw you formed in your mother's womb. And if God hadn't wanted to love you, you wouldn't be alive. He made you to love you. Now, until you understand that, you're not going to understand your purpose. I read in the paper the other day about a wealthy business. Could you imagine the Apostle Paul preaching this on Mars Hill in Athens? I mean, the Apostle Paul's sermon there, evangelistic presentation, if you would, sounds nothing like this. This man who committed suicide, and uh, at the funeral, uh, people were talking about him and said, I don't understand why he committed suicide. Yeah, I know the recession's tough, but why did he? He had so much to live on. And, And I said, yeah, he had a lot to live on. He had nothing to live for. Oh, man. Okay, just by way of comparison, let's take a look at how the Apostle Paul presents the gospel here. All right, let's see here. Acts chapter 17, if you have your Bible, open up um, to Acts chapter 17. We're going to start at verse 16. Paul is in Athens um, right you know, at, at the time of this uh, chapter, and we read, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, And in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And uh, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears 
We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time in nothing except for telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, aren't you tired that you have much to live on, but you don't have anything to live for? Are you tired of not ha- of living the good life, but not having the better life? Well, I've got life 2.0, and the good news is that Jesus came so that you can have a mulligan. <laughs> no, it doesn't work. Men of Athens, Paul says, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I now proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and thus find him. He's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring ought we not to think that the divine being is like uh, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art or imagination of man the times of ignorance god has overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead so <laughs> what did the Apostle Paul do? He proclaims Christ raised from the dead, the coming day of wrath, calls their idols worthless, calls them to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. And uh, <laughs> and here's how well it was received. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked uh, Paul, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, and some men joined him and believed so here we've got Rick Warren basically making a, a a very passionate love heartfelt appeal to people to live the better life so that they can have a more satisfying purpose-filled life and Jesus in his grace wants to give him a mulligan come on and and uh, not only is he going to give you a do-over but here's the good news he's Jesus is going to help you get it right the second time yeah. You see, you're never going to be happy living for yourself. You were meant to live for God. Now, what is this that God gives us? He gives us his grace. And what is grace? Grace is when God gives us what we need, not what we deserve. If I got what I deserved, I wouldn't be alive, and neither would you. Grace is when God forgives you without you earning it. Grace is the fact that God, no matter what you've done in life, God is not mad at you. He's mad about you. He loves you. And he loves to give a second chance. He is a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God. Notice how the mercy is just God giving you a second chance. By the way, if he were to get this correct, he would have to understand correctly what the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ is. Hey, let me point something out to you. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And this is a passage that I've, I've read often here at Fighting for the Faith, and I think it applies here. Okay. 
if Christianity and God's grace and the mercy won by Christ is God giving you a second chance, you know, it's still your responsibility with the help of God to get it right the second time. But that's not what the scriptures teach. Uh, Paul really knows a lot about righteousness. I mean, having been a Pharisee, this is something that's right down his alley. Here's what he says. Look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul wasn't interested in having a righteousness of his own, even a righteousness of his own that was assisted by God. No, he was talking about the righteousness of God. That righteousness is Christ's righteousness that is imputed to all believers by faith. God sees us as righteous in Christ. We are perfectly righteous in him because his righteousness is given to us to cover our sin. For Literally, our sins are atoned for and then we are Christ's righteousness is given to us as a gift. So if, the, if Rick Warren were being truthful biblically, and he wanted to use a, quote, golfing uh, metaphor to kind of explain what the biblical text teaches, here would be the idea, okay? is Golf is, a, is first of all, it's a very difficult game. But let's, let's just basically put it this way. In order to be saved, you would have to shoot a perfect round of par or better, or that means under par, um, on Bethpage Black, which is the one of the most difficult courses on the planet in New York, and uh, you have to do it under hurricane conditions. So the winds would be gusting upwards to 70 to 80 miles an hour in a torrential rainstorm with thunder and lightning. So you would be required, in order to be saved, you would have to shoot par or better at Bethpage Black under those conditions. Oh, and did I mention you'd have to be blindfolded? Okay? So... Those are your conditions that you have to do it. And if you don't shoot a perfect round under those condition conditions, then I'm sorry, but you're going to hell. Because that's what God requires. Good luck. Now you're thinking, okay, a mulligan isn't going to really help me here. <laughs> uh, and if Jesus is helping me, that's not really all that great either because Christians still sin, right? Okay. The the biblical gospel teaches us that Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, he is the God-man, came to earth and he shot that perfect round for you. He's got a scorecard that, that basically has tallied up his par or better round under those conditions. 
and he shot that perfect round. And here's the deal. He's going to give you his scorecard. And he wants your scorecard. The biblical gospel teaches that Jesus Christ takes the punishment that you earned by not shooting the perfect round under those conditions. And Jesus is going to die on the cross and basically drink to the dregs the entire fury of God's wrath for you. And you get off scot-free and you get his scorecard as if you're the one who shot it. That's the biblical gospel, not a do-over, but imputed righteousness and substitution. That's not what Rick Warren is teaching here, though, is it? But compassion. And until you know your creator, you're not going to know the purpose of your life. Jesus said, not only did I come to give you life, he said, I came to set you free. You've heard the statement, the truth will set you free. That's a quote from Jesus. And what people often forget is the rest of the quote, because Jesus also said, I am the truth. And he said, and if the son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. What has Jesus set us free from? All the things that mess us up. He sets you free from guilt, from worry, from resentment. What about the wrath of God? Jesus saves us. He saves us from what? Guilt, worry, Hang on a second here. Um, I want to pull up another passage. Okay, This list that he's giving is just ridiculous. Um, If you do a simple word search in the New Testament Gospels uh, for the phrase wrath, okay, we come up with John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains remains on him. Jesus doesn't come to set you, to save you and set you free from worry. He comes to save you and set you free from the wrath of God. What is this gospel? From bitterness, from fear, from boredom, from loneliness, from the expectation. Jesus saves me from boredom. Oh, thank you. I I so needed that one. Expectations of your past. He 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 gives you a uh, uh, freedom from your past. Freedom for your present, freedom in your future. Your past is forgiven. You get a purpose for living. You get a home in heaven. How do you get that? How do you? Yeah, really. How? How? Get that kind of better life, a life that God all the better life always meant for you to live. Well, you don't get it by being religious. Some of you grew up in a. I don't even think the Bible offers what you're talking about, Rick. Religious environment. Uh, and you were taught that you had to do all certain kinds of things. You know, you can actually summarize every religion uh, uh, in, in the word do. It's it's something you do to get God's approval. And all the religions just have their own list. This list has, this religion has their list, and that religion has their list, and the next one has the next list. And it's all about things you do for God. But Jesus came to earth to say, it's not about doing. Uh, he defines life as done. It's been done for you. You know, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he stretched out his hands and he died and died for our sins and died so we could have a bridge to heaven and died so we could know how much God loves us. With his arms outstretched, Jesus was saying to you, this is how much I love you. I love you so much it hurts. I love you so much I'd rather die than live without you. That's how. 
I don't want to live without you. Man. How much I love you. And on the cross, one of the last things he said was, it is finished. It's very important you understand he didn't say, I am finished, because he wasn't. I want to point something out here. Now, Rick is using biblical terminology. I mean, Jesus died on the cross, sins. But notice how the meanings of all of these different words are completely different. They're changed. Christianity is, you know, the, what God is, Christ basically did, came to save you from boredom, from worry, from, you know, that. And uh, the good news is, is he's going to give you a mulligan, and then he's going to help you get it right the second time. Sounds so generous, doesn't it? But it isn't. Because you can't even be saved if you're given a mulligan. Three days later, he came back to life, split history into A.D. and B.C. It's called Easter. He walked around Jerusalem for another 40 days. At one time, he was seen by over 500 people, appeared to lots of different people. And that's why all of history is split into A.D. and B.C., because God invaded Earth. Jesus said, I am the Son of God, and I came to die for your sins, and I came to give you life, and I came to set you free. And I'm going to prove it by coming back to life. Set me free from what? Boredom? Yeah, thanks. I couldn't have gotten out of that one myself. And now every time you write a date, even when an atheist writes a date, they're using Jesus Christ as a reference point. 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011. From what? From this point, when God split history into A.D. and B.C. And he said, it is finished. What was finished? All you need in order to get to heaven. And let me make this really clear. And I want you to listen to me as if your life depends on it. Oh, uh, okay. Because it does. Yeah, because I, I need to be saved from boredom. Eternity lies in the balance here. Not just a meaningful life here on earth, but eternity. Heaven is a perfect place. And God created us to be a part of his family. God loves you, and he wants you to live with him forever in eternity. Uh, it's not an exaggeration to say that God has major long-range plans for your life. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. I can't even figure out what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm glad God's got some long-range plans for me. But the problem is heaven's perfect and we're not. And if God let imperfect people into heaven, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. And if you could earn your way into heaven and earn God's approval, then we'd all get up there and we'd all be bragging about it. Well, I got into heaven because I gave the United Way. And, well, I got into heaven because I helped the poor. And I got, it'd, be, it'd be just like earth. So God said, I'll have to come up with plan B. Plan A to get to heaven is be perfect. The only problem is none of us fit that plan. So God says, I'm going to come to earth in human form, live a perfect life, die on the cross, show people how to live. Oh, okay. Live a perfect life and show people how to live. Got it. So that's one of the ways in which he helps us get it right the second time after he gives us a mulligan. And then people can get to heaven on my ticket. You know, I um, heard about a father who took his son and his, three, uh, son, his son's three best friends to a, a carnival. And uh, the father bought a roll of tickets, and at every uh, ride, he'd give his son a free ticket, and he'd give his three best friends a, a ticket, and they'd go ride the ride. And uh, then he'd go to the next ride, and he'd give his son a ticket, and he'd give the three friends that came with him for his birthday a ticket, and they'd ride the ride. 
And they were doing this five or six, seven times. And on about the eighth time, he looks down and he sees a fourth little hand uh, uh, stick out for a ticket. And he looks down at this little kid he's never seen before. And he says, who are you? And the little boy said, I'm your son's new friend. And your son said that if I was his friend, his dad would give me a free ticket. <laughs> uh, this guy, Ron, said, do you think I gave the kid a ticket? He said, absolutely, I did. You know, that's exactly what your heavenly father's done for you. God has a ticket for you for a meaningful life, a better life, and an eternal life in heaven. Notice, <laughs> yeah, heaven's kind of like third on the list, but you get a meaningful life and oh, whatever. You could never buy that ticket. You couldn't afford it. It cost Jesus his life. You could never earn it. You could never deserve it. You couldn't bargain for it. You simply accept it by faith. You see, you were never meant to go through life on your own power. You were meant to be plugged in to Oh, you're never meant to go on your own power. You have to be plugged into the power of God. Got it. Yeah, so that's how he helps you get it right the second time. Too late for me, by the way. Way too late. I'm... Jesus Christ. And when you plug in, you receive his grace. And the reason that you're tired all the time is because you're running on your own energy, running on your own battery. Oh, so grace is like an electrical socket. Got it. Let me give you some good news. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available to you on a regular basis. I know. I've been walking as a follower of Jesus Christ now for well over 40 years. He's my best friend. I talk to him all the time, just like I'm talking to you. Uh, I just con converse with, with uh, God all the time. You can have that kind of connection. We call it a purpose-driven connection because... Well, that's what you call it, but no one else in Christianity has ever called it that except for you guys. It's a connection of purpose where you connect with God so that your past is forgiven, you get a purpose for living, and you get a home in heaven. How do you make that connection? How do you begin a relationship? Not a religion, but a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, first thing you do is you believe. You believe that Jesus told the truth when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You believe Jesus when he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's not really that hard. About 90% of all Americans uh, say, I believe Jesus is who he said he was. Well, then why don't I have a relationship with him? I believe in Jesus. I mean, well, great, you're halfway there. You're already halfway there. Now what you need to do is you need to receive him. The Bible said to those who he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe and receive. You believe in him and you receive him. That's how you get across the bridge. And how do I receive Jesus into my life? Well, by admitting you need him. The Bible calls that confession by saying, God, I've, I've blown it. I've sinned. I've made mistakes. A lot of times I did what I wanted to do instead of what you wanted me to do. God, I've lived my life, my entire life. On my plan, not your plan, not your purpose. And, and now I'm stressed out and bored and just unsatisfied. I want to turn from that. I want to switch. I want to change. Uh, I want to go a different direction. The Bible calls that repentance. Repentance just means a changing your mind. It means saying, I, I, I want to turn from hopelessness to hope. I want to repentance means turning from hopelessness to hope. Turn from darkness to light, uh -huh. from despair to joy. Uh, uh.
I want to turn from guilt to forgiveness. Yeah, I want to go from guilt to forgiveness, that's for sure. But, I mean, you haven't laid any real guilt on me unless I should feel guilty for being bored. (sighs) I want to turn from meaninglessness to purpose. So I believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, somewhere in there is the gospel. Somewhere in there is the biblical gospel. But why is it covered up with all this other stuff? Ah! I admit that I need him. I switch to his plan. And I turn from my self-centeredness and say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus Christ. I don't understand it all, but I'm going to follow you. And then you invite him into your heart. I'm going to pray a prayer with you right now, and uh, then I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer uh, with me. First, I'm going to pray for you, and then I want to invite you to pray with me. Honestly, it doesn't even matter the words you say. It's, It's the condition of your heart that says, me too, God. And when I pray this, you can just say that too. So you can just watch me pray, or you can just bow your head. But I would encourage you, if you're alone, to say these words aloud. First, let me pray for you. Uh, dear Lord, okay, you get the gist of it. I, this is just a complete gospel train wreck. Absolute gospel train wreck. Uh, if After listening to it, I mean, what do you think the gospel is, according to Rick Warren? I, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's just that Christ gives me a second chance and he's going to help me get it right the second time. So I can do it on his power, and that power is called grace. And the reason I should do that is because I'm dissatisfied and my life is good, but it could be better. I don't even think that's this is the biblical gospel. I don't know what this is, but it's not the biblical gospel. What do you think? Would love to get your feedback. My email address, by the way, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. <laughs> Wipe out. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. 
That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Well into hour number two. It's time for our sermon review time. Hopefully we'll have enough time to get through this whole thing. Yeah, my head is still spinning after listening to Rick Warren. That's the gospel? I I don't even think that gospel's capable of saving anyone. I'd like to be saved from boredom, please, and would like a mulligan so that God can help me do it over. Yeah, never mind. Switching gears here. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon is brought to you by Scott Hodge of The Orchard in Aurora, Illinois. The name of the sermon is Experience. Julian of Norwich. And you're saying, huh? Julian of what? Sandwich? What? What's Julian of Norwich? Well, um, she's a 14th century medieval Catholic mystic nun who had some experiences, some visions of God. And I kid you not, Scott Hodge is going to be um, spending quite a bit of time telling us about these visions that Julian the Sandwich has had. And um, supposedly he thinks they're really from God. I mean, that's the reason why he's preaching about them in his purpose-driven church. By the way, Scott Hodge is one of the up-and-coming young leaders of the seeker-driven, purpose-driven movement. And uh, if you ever read his blog, then you know that one of the things he does like to do is read books by emergent authors. So what you're going to hear is basically an impassioned plea for the validity of mysticism. I wonder how long before uh, Scott Hodge gets the invite to go and speak at the Radicalis Conference. Anyway, let's kill this. All right, so without any further ado, here is Scott Hodge, Experience, Julian of Norwich. Good morning. So let's get the real spiritual stuff out of the way, okay? How many of you went to U2 concert last night? How many of you going tonight? Anybody? 
Good. Hey, I'll look for you. Okay, I'll look for you out of the 60,000 people who will be screaming their heads off. And uh, do we have any U2 fans in here? No? No? So why aren't you all going to the concert tonight? Come on now. Anyway, we should have made it an orchard event. That, that would be about the, one of the more spiritual things we've done. Anyway, I'm excited to go to U2. But you know what? I'm even more excited to be here right now with you. So a few weeks ago, um, about six weeks ago, I would say, uh, my family and I, we were in Orlando, Florida at this, uh, at this convention conference thing that I was speaking at. And um, we were, we were uh, one of the days my, my had my kids with me and we're walking through this exhibition hall. They had all these exhibits and, and Christian paraphernalia. And, uh, and, we're, and we're walking down one of the aisles and all of a sudden uh, I, I see Jesus walk by me. Yeah, and robe and everything. Walks right, Jesus walks by me. I was like, what? And I looked down at my, one of my daughters looks at me and says, Dad, was that the Lord? <laughs> I, said, I said, I think it was. I think Jesus has returned. Wow. And it didn't go down at all like I thought it would. Wow. No, no. I, I, I said, no, honey, I think that's, that's the uh, Jesus character from the Holy Land uh, exhibit. But, but anyway, um, apparently <laughs> Jesus seems to be showing up all over the place these days. Yeah, you know, whether it's in uh, Jakarta, Indonesia, where uh, some of you may have heard of this two years ago, Jesus was seen on the side of a water-stained house. That's right. Or uh, maybe you heard the one about in New Mexico, where Jesus showed up, out of all places, on a tortilla. That's right. Um, or, or there was the discovery of Jesus in a bag of cheese puffs. How many of you might have seen that one, right? Now, now how, how, they, how they, like... You think that looks like Jesus? I have no idea. It looks more like, you know, uh, Freddy Krueger or, or something. Anyway, or how about the couple? They go in the hospital, they have ultrasound, and they get the ultrasound picture, and guess who's in the womb? Jesus. That's right. Jesus is in the womb. Uh, he's showing up all over the place, including on the floating on top of my latte this morning. Jesus was right there. And, uh, <laughs> oh, man. All right. So, you know, we laugh. It's funny. We, we laugh and, and because some of those are pretty funny. But, but I, wonder if, <laughs> I wonder if in the midst of all of the, 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 the funny things and all, all the ridiculous things, I wonder if we almost miss something uh, sublime. Because, you know, I mean, if you think about it, most of the people who, who have these claims, most of the people who, who claim to see Jesus on a, on a tortilla, on a billboard, on a whatever, maybe side of a house, a wall, whatever, most of the people who you hear tell these stories and, and, and have these claims are, are not necessarily just these attention-getting weirdos, okay? I mean, a lot of these people are very, very committed people who, who uh, seriously seek to know Jesus, and they have a desire to experience him. And, and so, of course, whether or not, you know, these accounts are true or they're the real thing or whatever, I think it does speak volumes of the hunger and the desire that people have to see and experience Jesus. I think it speaks a lot about that. And, of course, I'll be honest with you. I mean, most of you know, I, I grew up in the church. Um, and, you know, I've seen my share of flaky people who, who had their, you know, their visions and their experiences that seemed to do nothing more than just give them a good story to tell or draw attention to themselves. And so, in a way, I've sort of uh, found myself being somewhat cynical over the years uh, towards these types of claims. And, and, yet, and yet it's funny because when you open up the scriptures, uh, which, you know, it's, we'll have problems with those, but then we open up the scriptures and we read all these accounts of people who had some pretty amazing, pretty uh, mystical experiences and encounters and visions and, and experiences with angels and God and, I mean, even Jesus himself. 
Yeah, I mean, for example, one of the stories in the scriptures that, that I remember as a little kid always kind of freaked me out, but it was a story of Eli and Samuel. I don't know if you, you, some of you might know the story, but basically um, one night uh, they're getting ready to fall asleep and Samuel, okay, and I was always afraid this was going to be me, okay, Samuel is ready to fall asleep and he hears a voice calling his name. Well, of course, he assumes that it's Eli. So he's like, what's up, Eli? Eli says, what? What are you talking about? Samuel says, seriously, quit, are you calling my name? Eli says, no, it's not me. It happens three more times. Finally, uh, finally uh, uh, Eli's like, hey, you know what? Maybe it's God. And, and finally, it's like Samuel gets it, you know, and, and he finally, you know, answers, okay, God, is it you? And he ends up having this amazing experience that, that changes his life. There's also the story of uh, the Apostle Paul. Many of you Notice here the purpose of the experience is this, it radically changes your life. The experience does, or does God change your life? Also, the story of uh, the Apostle Paul. Many of you know the story. Um, you know, he's got, he has this, this uh, mystical encounter with God that ends up changing his life forever. I mean, he's traveling. Mystical encounter. You're, you're going to call Paul's conversion story on the way to Damascus as a, quote, mystical encounter? Oh down this road to Damascus one day and, and he's on his way to further his campaign against Christians. And as, as he's walking and as he's going down the road, all of a sudden he's blinded by this light. He hears this, this voice, you know, like out of heaven or something and, and the, this voice that tells him to stop doing that. I think I would stop too. He says, stop doing that. And, and, and the voice says, change your ways. And so, so Paul hears this and it, the voice says, change your ways. Oh, boy. At that moment, from Saul to Paul. And, and he ends up uh, becoming and having a, a totally new understanding of God. And there's many others. I mean, you just, you know, story of Mary, right? Jesus shows up, or the angels show up, and, hey, Mary, hi. <laughs> um, you're going to give birth to the Savior. Ooh, okay, okay. Mm, can I chew on that for a little bit, right? Um, or John, right? John, the he he write, goes on to uh, write about his revelation. Uh, Moses. I'm mean, gonna go on and on and on. And what 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 I think it seems like is, is that while there are certainly those experiences that that we hear and and seem kind of funny or weird or, or whatever, there also seem to be those other types of mystical experiences in the Bible and even outside of the Bible and throughout history that have actually changed people's lives. And actually have drawn them and, and pointed them back to the nature and character of who God is. And, and yet, it, it seems like it only happens to, to a few people. Most of us are glad about that, right? Most of us don't want to be those people, right? Because we get a little bit wigged out by these types of experiences. But it does seem like it only happens to a few people who seem to really experience the reality of these kind of things in their lives today. It's almost, it's almost as if God, you know, gives this type of blessing or gives this type of mystical life to a few people as a way of encouraging the rest of us, maybe giving us a taste perhaps of, of uh, what's ahead in the life to come or, or whatever it might be. Well, today, I want to introduce you to one of those rare individuals, uh, a, a woman, a, a celebrated medieval mystic known as Julian of Norwich. Okay, notice, he admits in his introduction of Julian that She's a medieval mystic. Mystic. I want to point something out to you, a little bit of history on Julian of Norwich. By the way, she lived in the 14th century. Although she lived in a time of turmoil, Julian's theology was optimistic. 
Speaking of God's love in terms of joy and compassion as opposed to law and duty, for Julian, suffering was not a punishment that God inflicted, as was the common understanding. She believed that God loved and wanted to save everyone. Popular theology magnified by current events, including the Black Death and a series of peasant revolts, assumed that God was punishing the wicked. In response, Julian suggested a far more merciful theology, which some say leaned toward universal salvation. That's one of the things that universalists all kind of seem to have in, in, in their theology is this universalism that everyone's... Because she lived that, she believed that behind the reality of hell is yet a greater mystery of God's love. She has also been referred to in modern times as a proto-universalist, though she herself never actually claimed more than hope that all might be saved. Even though her views were not typical, local authorities did not challenge either her theology or her authority to make such religious claims because of her status as an anchoress. However, the lack of mention of her work during her period uh, may simply indicate that religious authorities did not count her worthy of refuting since she did not have much power as a woman. So here we got a mystic proto-universalist who... Oh, man. Okay. And this is whom Scott, Scott Hodge is holding up for us to believe that her experiences were from the actual biblical God. Now, I'm going to point something out here as we listen to this and you hear her visions. I'm going to point something out, and that is is that Scott Hodge is going to go through some great pains to show that these visions that she had can be the, the, they, they, the, the Bible teaches the same things that apparently were taught in her visions to which I would basically say, then why did we need her visions if it's in the scriptures? But there's stuff, other stuff in her visions that contradict the scriptures. You see, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. That means that Satan isn't going to say in a vision, what I want you to do is, uh, Go get a pitchfork and uh, put on a red union suit and and uh, behave like the devil. No, there's going to be just enough truth that's going to be the bait that's going to be on the satanic hook. Let's continue. Interesting lady. She lived as an anchoress, which was basically uh, a, a woman who would live in a, in a small little like uh, apartment or house that was connected to a church, and and she would spend her days praying, reflecting on God, giving giving spiritual. Uh, guidance and counseling to people who sought her out. Um, and she was born at a really, really interesting time in history, 1342. And that uh, would just happen to be shortly before one of the deadliest pandemics in human history hit, known as the Black Plague. If you don't think about the Black Plague, I mean, it ends up wiping out, uh, I believe it's almost uh, half of Europe. As you can imagine, it creates this, this unbelievable amount of, of instability uh, in Europe at that time. Uh, and then at the same time, there's also this, this uh, um, enormous amount of, 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 of clashing happening between religions. You know, you've got, um, I mean, for example, the, the papacy had just left Rome, was exiled in France. And interestingly enough, this is, this is mind-blowing. Okay, just, just about a half a mile away from the church where Julian lived, uh, at that same time, were some of the earliest Protestant Christians being burned at the stake. And so, and so imagine this, you know, at, the, at this time when all of this is happening, this woman named Julian shows up on the scene with this... With this, with this uh, the Protestant Reformation started in the 1300s, Scott? Uh, 
I don't even think Haas was burned in the 1300s. <sighs> with this, with this, with this fresh, positive, beautiful message. Uh, that, that I mean, she's got this extremely optimistic theology. Not probably quite as optimistic as maybe Joel Osteen, but but pretty pretty optimistic. I mean, very positive message. And and so and so she goes around and starts speaking of God's love in these new terms that people have never heard before. I mean, suddenly she's speaking of God's love in terms of joy and compassion versus law and duty and and all the other rigid things that most people were used to hearing. Um, in fact, just to give an example of her words. Listen to this quote. Uh, she wrote these one time. Glad and merry and sweet is the blessed and lovely demeanor of our Lord. Now, that, that is, you just imagine at that time, people did not necessarily see the Lord as being glad, merry, and sweet, right? I mean, yeah, but she's a mystic universalist. Kind of like Rob Bell. Demeanor of our Lord. Now, that, that is, you just imagine at that time, people did not necessarily see the Lord as being glad, merry, and sweet, right? I mean, no, no, God, God was like, God was pretty much PO'd most of the time. Right? In, in people's minds. And so all of a sudden she comes along and she's like, glad and merry and sweet is the blessed and lovely demeanor of our Lord towards our souls. Wait a minute. He loves us? Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a different message. Got to point something out here. Why is that such a profound different message? Why? Because much of medieval Catholicism by this point had slipped into rank heretical works righteousness. It was big business to keep people in fear. And so what does Julian of Norwich offer? A counterfeit gospel. The gospel of universalism. Or gospel reductionism. God is love. Uh, Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yet, if the Roman Catholic Church during the medieval period had actually been proclaiming the gospel, clearly people would have heard of God's love for us in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us on the, sin, if, uh, on the cross for our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So notice here, Scott Hodge here is making the same error that uh, Julian has made, slipping into this mysticism slash universalism, but this isn't the biblical gospel. He saw us always living in love longing, and he wants our souls to be gladly disposed toward him. By his grace, he lifts up and will draw our outer disposition to our inward and will make us all at unity with him and each of us with others in the true lasting joy, which is Jesus. I mean, totally counter-cultural to what people were used to hearing. I mean, it's no wonder that that years later, Thomas Merton goes on to um, uh, proclaim that she was one of the greatest theologians of all time. Well, interestingly enough, Julian of Norwich was also the first woman to ever publish a, uh, a book in the English language. And the book that she publishes, and of course there were other women who were writing during that time, but unfortunately at that time women weren't not necessarily allowed to publish books. And so uh, the men who had helped them with their manuscripts usually were the ones that ended up with their names on the book. But anyway, so Julian of Norwich is the first one to write and publish a book under her own name, and the book goes on to become a classic. You'd think that Julian Norwich is actually one of the uh, women saints mentioned in the New Testament. FYI, she isn't. Oh, and I looked it up. John Huss. Uh, 1400s, not 1300s. Just want to make that clear. Huss really, as far as I understand, is like one of the earliest proto-Protestants out there. 
religious experiences that occurred in this woman's life uh, right around the age of 30. Uh, Julian, at the time, she she had been suffering uh, from severe illness. In fact, she thought she was on her deathbed. And so she's on her deathbed, and it's during this time that she, she claims to have had a total of 16 intense visions of Jesus. And here's how she explains it. Quote, of these 16 revelations, the first began early in the morning, about the, uh, about the hour of four, and it lasted, revealing them in a determined order, most lovely and calm. Um, I'm going, okay, yeah, see, if that were me, visions of Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I love Jesus, and I mean, that's, I'd really see Jesus and the devil, but anything showing up in my house in the middle of the night, I'm out of there. I'm running, Forrest, run. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, um, <laughs> but she says, most lo- you guys are like, what? Come on, it's Jesus. No, no, I'd like to see you. Anyway. Let's just be honest here, right? Anyway, (laughs) most lovely and calm, each following the other until it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon or later. Now, here's her, and you'll understand then why I say I would run when you start hearing what some of her visions were. Okay, here's one. Julian sees blood trickling from the crown of thorns on the crucifix and has experiences of the Trinity and of the Blessed Virgin. Uh, Doesn't this put her outside of... Sound biblical theology? He is in all things. Here's another one. God gives Julian alternating experiences of joy and sorrow. Some of you are like, that's my husband that does that for me. Anyway, um, (laughs) here's another one. (laughs) Julian, I just had a caffeine. Um, Here's the last one. this This is strange. Jesus shows Julian his heart. Within his wounded side. Okay, so now this is where those of us who are a bit skeptical about these kind of things and a little bit doubtful or cynical uh, say to ourselves, okay, so where is Scott going with all of this? And let me just say, I completely understand. Okay, because I'll tell you, the first time I ever read about Julian of Norwich, I got to say I was completely torn. Okay, first of all, when I was... Okay, I need to remind you all, we recently did a sermon review of Scott Hodge where he was teaching people how they can have experiences, mystical experiences, by practicing the Lectio Divina. Scott Hodge has jumped into the mysticism pool. Okay? Now, something to keep in mind. We, I recently interviewed Christine Pack of the Sola Sisters. She spent a lot of time in Easter in mysticism, and she basically her testimony is is that you absolutely have a valid you have real mystical quote experiences, but their source is not God. Okay, now that and she says it happens the very first time you do it. I'm going to draw an analogy. It's not a very sanctified analogy, and I think it's valid, though. I have heard it said that you can become addicted to crack cocaine after just one hit on it. It's that addictive. I think in a very similar way, this mysticism stuff, these experiences that you have are addicting but they're not they're not experiences that are grounded in Jesus Christ or have their origin from the throne of heaven they're as addictive as crack cocaine that being the case i think a valid way to describe what's going on here is that these guys have become addicted to these mystical experiences the same way a crack whore is addicted to crack cocaine these guys are spiritual crack whores 
This isn't biblical what you're hearing. And it's not from God. But I definitely think it's real. Okay, so now this is where those of us who are a bit skeptical about these kind of things and a little bit doubtful or cynical uh, say to ourselves, okay, so where is Scott going with all of this? And let me just say, I completely understand. Okay, because I'll tell you, the first time I ever read about Julian of Norwich, I got to say I was completely torn. Okay, first of all, when I, was, when I was young, I was told, you don't ever listen to someone like this because they're wacky. Okay, don't read their stuff because if you read their stuff, whatever they got is going to jump on you and you're going to get it. Okay, and so no, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I was the guy that was like, uh, you know, go to the backwards masking seminars. You know what backwards masking is? You play the record backwards. You ever heard that? Yeah, some of you are like, records? What are records? Okay, records are these things that used to play music, okay? And anyway, so I go to these backwards masking seminars, okay? Now just listen, listen, okay? You're going to hear, just listen to this. Let's, okay, just listen. Did you hear that? It said Satan is Lord. Did you hear it? And listen again. Satan is Lord. Did you hear it? Burn your albums. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Pray for me. Okay. So anyway, so on one hand, I'm reading this about this lady. (laughs) Welcome to all of you who are visiting. Um, (laughs) Oh, man, this is just how we roll here. Okay. So anyway, what was I saying? Julian. Okay. So I start reading about her visions, and half of me is going, you know, there's something kind of intriguing about this. And the other half of me is going, whoo, that's weird. This is strange. And so, you know what? Let me just say I completely understand. So here's the deal. I'm not really interested in trying to, uh, you know, evaluate the reliability of her claims or anything like that. But I do think. Okay, this is not exactly true because this sermon, he's going to actually try to show you that these visions that she had, that this, this stuff is taught in the Bible, that that's consistent with what's taught in scriptures. So he is going to try to validate her, quote, claims. What's happened to Scott Hodge? He's taken a hit off the mysticism stuff, and he's hooked. And it's affecting his preaching. This is dangerous, dangerous stuff that he's dealing with. Now, on one hand, though, I understand why he went this way. I have experienced legalistic, self-righteous Christianity for myself and have withered under the scorching heat of the law, always held up to the thing that I have got to do. I, too, remember the days when I was warned about backward masking, you know, when Led Zeppelin's, uh, you know, music and things like that. And it's all legalistic pietism. But Scott, like Julian of Norwich, has skipped right over the biblical gospel, the good news of Christ dies for our sins, and has now gone off into mysticism and universalism. And he's giving this woman credibility. If you were attending the church for the first time, would you think he was speaking of her positively and as somebody that you could read and glean biblical truth from? To actually move into a deeper life with God. Because one of the things you begin to see in the life of Julian is that she was not at all interested in just having visions for the sake of having visions. I mean, she wasn't like sitting around bored and like, let, let, me, let me concoct a series of 16 visions so I can sell a book. No, I mean, there was like something 
real that was happening in her life. And, and I think it's important to know that because, see, man, if I agree there was something real, but it's not from God. Book. No, I mean, there was like something real that was happening in her life. And, and I think it's important to know that because, see, man, if, if all a person's experiences do is just give them a few goosebumps and, and you know, or, or, or make them feel really good for a few minutes or, or, or just draws attention to themselves, then I think we really have to ask the question of like, okay, was that really God or, or was it maybe a little bit too much Little Caesar's pizza they had the night before? You know, and, and so these are the kind of questions we, we, we want to think about and ask. And, and, and I think the important thing is, look, experience for the sake of experience really doesn't matter, doesn't make any difference to anybody. Just to have an experience for the sake of experience, big deal. You don't have to have a, an experience for the sake of experience. It could be a legitimate experience, but you have to test it against the Word of God. What does the Apostle Paul say in Galatians chapter 1? Even if we or an angel from heaven should appear to you and preach a gospel other than the one already preached, let him be eternally condemned. So if an angel shows up at your bedside tonight and starts talking theology with you and the gospel comes up and the gospel that the angel is proclaiming to you contradicts the biblical gospel of Christ crucified for our sins, that's not an angel sent from God. That's an agent of the devil masquerading as an angel of light designed to deceive you. All experiences get tested against the word of God. All angels, all pe preachers, everybody gets tested against the word of God, not the other way round. But anyway, um, if he, it, it's fun because he's at this stage now where he loves colors. And so and let's uh, call out the colors. What color is that? And so we pull to a stoplight and he'll look at the stop. He'll say, what color? He'll say, he'll say red, green, purple. No, no, that's yellow. <laughs> yellow. Okay, yellow. So, so but he loves that. Of course, he has no idea what they mean. Okay. He has no idea that, that red means stop. Okay. He just knows it's red. He likes red. And on the other hand, he understands the concept of stopping. You know, I mean, if my son, as he likes to do, starts running to the street, I will yell, stop. He won't listen to me. But he knows what I'm saying. He knows it. He, he's outside. I'm grilling out on the grill. He runs up. He's running towards the grill. I'm like, no, stop. And he'll stop. He understands what it means. He understands what it means with the back, if he's in the backyard. And, and I'll say, come on, Alex, go. And he'll run to me. He understands what it means to go. And he understands what it means to slow down. He's running in the house, and, and he's like this far from knocking his head on the side of the counter. And I'll say, slow down. And he'll slow down. He understands. He understands the colors, and he understands the movements. But he has no idea what a stoplight's about. He has no idea that red actually means stop, or that yellow means nail it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't do that. Slow down. Right or, or the green means go. He has no idea that you know two and two have not come together. I mean, he just hasn't added them up yet. And, and that'll only happen when he takes his sensory experiences of the colors and and then the conceptual understandings of what stop means and go and slow down. And when those two things come together, then he'll be able to make sense of the concept of what a stoplight is all about. Hopefully, before he turns sixteen. Right. Well, here's the deal. What makes Julian's experiences so 
so beautiful and worth looking at is that she didn't have these experiences just to have experiences or just in the end so that she could feel warm and fuzzy. You know, she wasn't... Motive doesn't matter. All experiences get tested against the word of God. Is that she didn't have these experiences just to have experiences or just in the end so that she could feel warm and fuzzy. You know, she wasn't sitting around staring at the face of Jesus on a tortilla day after day after day after day and walking away with nothing but wasted time. Yet you admitted she was a mystic. That tells you about the fact that she was engaging in mysticism in order to have experiences on a regular basis. Realize, as, as you read her writings, is that, is that along with these experiences, she includes these conceptual understandings and these extremely deep yet practical insights from the scriptures that bring these visions to life to her in a way that transforms her and has transformed many people since then. And I think one thing you, you really begin to, to see... Is anyone else troubled by the fact that a so-called Protestant pastor is promoting a Roman Catholic medieval mystic nun and basically saying her stuff is good for you to consume, read, and uh, let it help transform your life. Anyone else out there have a problem with this? You should if you don't see in her life is that on the other side of all these experiences was this revelation that she had of God's goodness in her life. I mean, she really understood that God is a good God. In fact, she had this one vision one time that's that going to sound weird up front, but she had this, this vision one time of God standing there with a little object in his hand. And she said it looked like a nut or like a little acorn or something. And, and she said she saw God standing there with this little object in his hand. And this little object to her seemed so insignificant and so fragile that she wondered why it didn't just crumble before her eyes. Well, we're told that as she came to understand what this object represented, that the object represented the entire created universe, which obviously is nothing compared to its creator. And yet in this vision, she was told these words, God made it, God loves it, God keeps it. Beautiful understanding. And see, she believed that, well, because she believed that God was good. And I think it's important for us to believe that God is good and to remember that God is good. Because I, I wonder sometimes if we really know that. You know, I mean, I think it's one thing, like, to know of God's goodness, right? To know that God is good. I think it's a whole other thing to actually know and experience his goodness. Sometimes in church, you know, I mean, I grew up in church. So, I, you know, the, the big thing in church when I was growing up was like, uh, if you have food on the table, warm food to eat tonight, you are experiencing God's goodness. Give us this day our daily bread. If the rain comes and waters the crops in your neck of the woods and the wheat and the corn grows and the vineyards grow, you are experiencing God's goodness because God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He's a merciful and loving God. The preacher would get up and say, good morning, God is good. And then everybody would say, three of you know, all the time, and all the time. Get my organ. About to throw down some church right here. And so that would be the thing like, God is good all the time. The devil is bad all the time. 
God is good. And, 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 and we are not, right? No, but God is good. And, and so here's the thing. Like, I, I, that's a great thing that's cute. And it's, it's fun and everything. But do we know it in here? Do we know his goodness? If you really want to preach his goodness, preach the cross. Scott? Do we know his goodness? I love the passage in Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. A lot of us have seen it, but have we tasted it? Think about that. I mean, have we, have we experienced his goodness? Have we, have we saved? Notice the emphasis on experience. This is an emphasis on subjectivity. Navel gazing. Liver shivers. Goose bumps. This is no way to determine truth. His goodness in our lives. I think it's obvious when you begin to look at the life of, of, of this woman, Julian of Norwich, um, you really get this idea that she got this, that she really understood and embraced God's goodness. See, see, I think when you begin to take time to, in, you know, when you take time to get past the weirdness, when you take time to get past the uncomfortableness, especially if you're like me and you grew up. In- so I'm supposed to co- take time to get past the weirdness of a Roman Catholic mystic nun having, quote, spiritual experiences and visions from God and just trust that it's really from God. If I can get past the weirdness, then I can embrace it and hold it and love it and, and cherish it and have my life trans- be transformed by it. Are you out of your mind? Once you work at getting past some of these these things and you begin to look at how she interpreted these visions that she had according to the scriptures, you you really realize why it is that she had this revelation of God's goodness. Actually, what you're going to find out is that we didn't even need her visions at all. And so what I want to do is I want to look at a couple of these visions she had, and and I want to to sort of compare how they line up with scripture. Uh, Now, there's 16 of them. We're not going to do all 16. Okay, we're going to do like three or four. Okay, so I want, to, I want to go through a couple of these. One of them that she had was this right here. Uh, Julian sees blood flowing from the wounds on Christ's body and then vanishing. Now, what Julian believed that this vision signified was that, was that Christ's blood was shed for the whole world. Now, now I think for, for a lot of Okay, there. Wow. Whoo. It's not like we don't have a Bible verse that says that. Um, but, but here's the thing. Like, it really became real to her that the blood of Jesus was not just shed for a select few people. It wasn't just shed for, for the Catholics. It wasn't just shed for the Protestants. Okay, now listen. Here comes the universalism. Protestants uh, or, or the Lutherans or the Methodists or, or whatever, she understood this whole concept of there's this mystery of the gospel that, that the blood of Jesus was shed not just for the Jews but also for the Gentiles. She understood this. His blood was shed for all of mankind. And see, I think that's something we need to be reminded of again and again and again because I think we sort of have this tendency sometimes to, to because of the personal implications of salvation, which are huge, and salvation does have a very personal, uh, personal implications to our lives. Uh, but if we're not careful, it can be easy to make it all about us, can't it? Right? I mean, we, we, he, he's my Savior. Jesus is my Savior. He is my Lord. He died for my sins. He is my 
personal Lord and Savior. And while all of these things are true, we we must never forget that he's not just my Savior, but he is the Savior of the world. Right? And, and And how exactly are those two ideas at odds with each other? I'm sick and tired of these emergent postmodern types, you know, basically pitting these two concepts against each other. I don't see the big conflict. For my sins, he is my personal Lord and Savior. And while all of these things are true, we, we must never forget that he's not just my Savior, but he is the Savior of the world. Right? And, and, and that he did not just die for my sins, he died for the sins of the world. And to which I would basically say, okay, we're going to talk this way, then let's talk about who then Christ's atonement is applied to. Because I read earlier from John chapter 3, verse 36. Let me pull this up again on my computerized Bible. Hang on a second here. Verses John chapter 3. Okay. Add a little context there. Here we go. John chapter 3, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He is of the earth, uh, belongs to the earth, and speaks in earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no eye has received his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things to his, into his hand, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, I agree. The Scriptures teach Christ died for the sins of the world. But I do not believe the Scriptures teach that, therefore, all are saved. For those who don't believe in Christ, the wrath of God remains on them. That's important, and that's somehow missing here. Why? Well, because, as we learned earlier, Julian of Norwich is basically a proto-universalist. He did not just die for my sins. He died for the sins of the world. And and so I think that, that... that we have to make sure that we're sort of living in this balance, that, that we're living in this balance of remembering both. That, sure, there are these beautiful personal implications to salvation, but there's also this greater and much larger scope of the gospel. And, and of course, as, as Julian remarked, that, that redemption could have never taken place without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. No other way could have happened. Okay. Uh, he- now here you're going to hear about the atonement. Christ shed blood for us. I, this... It's a little bit more than a gospel nugget, so let's let's listen in. First uh, Peter chapter one verse eighteen. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you. Did you know that? God paid a ransom to save you from this empty life you inherited from your ancestors. What? God, came, Christ came to save you from this empty life. Hang on a second here. We're gonna. Let me back up the tape here. I know what he's talking about. And much larger scope of the gospel. And, and of course, as Julian remarked, that, that redemption could have never taken place without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
No other way could have happened. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9 tells us this, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 18. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you. Did you know that? God paid a ransom to save you from this empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he... <clears throat> Hang on a second here. This actually argues against uh, her universalism. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Let's add a little context. Okay. Um, as obedient children, verse 14, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as such as silver or gold, but with pr- the precious blood of Christ, like the Lamb of God, without blemish. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in, this, in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, notice the way he quoted this verse. It makes it sound like uh, God basically saves you from a futile and empty life. But the futile, empty life that's mentioned here in, in this passage is the one that follows after sinful passions and the, and the passions of the flesh. Okay, So Christ didn't, you know, God didn't save you. Christ didn't save you from an empty life. That's not really what's going on there. Some of us could pay that ourselves, right? Although many of us probably not because we don't, we, we don't have any gold or silver, right? But, but it, was, it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. See, here's the thing. I, I think when you really begin to grasp the enormity of this, and, and I think this is what happened to Julian of Norwich. I think she grasped the enormity of this. When, when you do this, you understand why someone like her who has a vision of this and it comes alive to her in this beautiful way would cause her to really believe and trust that God is so so good. Let's look at another one of her visions. And so she, her visions make her believe God is good, but the message of the cross doesn't. Grants her certainty that her showings come from Jesus, thus confirming his existence and truth to her. Listen to how she, she expounds on this, okay? Uh, in all eternity, th- this is actually a very powerful revelation for her. Um, in all eternity, Jesus will never leave the position which he takes in our soul. Do you hear that? Listen. What? Huh? For sitting in us is his most familiar home. Isn't that beautiful? This was a ravishing and restful sight, for the sight of this sitting gave me certainty that he dwells there eternally. See, what, what, what Julian walked away with from this particular vision what was this renewed confidence in her salvation. And, and I tell you, I think there's just something so beautiful about this. Because, because, see, I, I think for a lot of us, and, and many of you who grew up Catholic, you, you'll connect with this. You'll understand what I mean by this. There are just many of us who, while we grew up in a, in a very spiritual environment, in a very religious environment, maybe even grew up in church or whatever, uh, at the same time did not have a whole lot of confidence in our salvation. You know, we, we, we just weren't... Okay, listen carefully to the stifling legalism he grew up under. 
You know, we, we, we just weren't real confident that we were actually, I mean, in fact, for some of us, it wasn't even that we didn't have confidence. For many of us, we lived most of our lives worried that, that we weren't saved to begin with. I know this fear. I know this fear. This is what I experienced when I was a Nazarene. There was no gospel for me. Right? And so for a lot of us, we spent tons of time worrying about whether or not we were going to ever get into heaven. Right? I mean, like that became our goal in life. We wake up every day hoping somehow, maybe even if it's just by the edge of my toenail, I will get into heaven. See, when I was young, there was this one phrase people would use. Excuse me. Phone in my pocket. Um, but there was this phrase that, that people would use. The phrase was backslidden. How many of you ever heard that phrase, a backslider? Backslider, huh? Yeah, backsliders. This room, we've got some backsliders here tonight. We're going we're gonna to call you out to, to slide your way back up. Uh, but, and the idea of this, the idea of this, and I see, I'm going to get passionate about this because this messed me up in my life. But I'll tell you, the idea was, well, okay, if you're not praying like you should be praying, with what that really meant was like, if you're not angry, like most religious people are, and you're not praying with enough anger in your voice, then, well, you must not be on fire for God, right? If you're not praying enough, or if you're not reading your Bible like you should be reading it, or if, you, if, you, if you're sinning, you're backsliding. You're, you're a backslide, which means that if Jesus returned right now, whew, you are going down to Chinatown. You are, listen, you, if you die before getting right with God, let me tell you something, you probably won't make it into heaven. Well, uh-uh. No, if you do, you're going to crawl in there like a, like a whipped puppy with his tail between his legs. Folks, so contrary to what the scriptures show us. So contrary. Yeah, but Scott, that's not what the, uh, our doctrinal statement says in our church. I don't care what your doctrinal statement says. I don't care what your doctrinal statement says. What does the Bible say? Right? If, you're, if, if, if the Bible doesn't back up your doctrinal statement, you might as well put your doctrinal statement in the shredder. Shred it up right now. Anyway. I'm just saying, see, I get angry about this because, see, for years of my life, I, I, I spent years of my life worried that I'm going to hell. I spent, now, <clears throat> just so you know, I completely understand this. I've lived this. But keep in mind, Julian of Norwich is a proto-universalist, mystic, medieval Catholic nun. She's not proclaiming the biblical gospel. She's talking about the love of God, which all sounds so loving and kind. And trust me when I tell you, that's far more appealing than the constant withering under God's law that you experience when you, you when you are in a self-righteous works righteousness religion even if it has the name of such and such Christian church <clears throat> uh, yeah frying pan into the fire is what I'm hearing I spent years of my life worried that I'm going to hell I spent years of my life trying to perform to be good enough. I spent years of my life try, trying to, to do just all the right things so that I could get into heaven. And I'll tell you what, I'm so thankful for God's grace. I've never had a closer relationship to God in my entire life, and I've never felt more secure. I've never felt more uh, uh, secure in the hands of my Savior than I do right now in my life. And what's the new thing? He's practicing mysticism. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love. 
Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow or our denominations or churches or doctrinal statements. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Did you hear that? Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Look, I mean, I don't know about you, but that seems... Um, Repentance and the forgiveness of sins, Scott? Here's another one. Ephesians chapter 2. God saved you by his grace when you believed. That's right, when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. In other words, amen. Do you know what that's saying? You had nothing to do with your salvation. Right on. (laughs) Nothing. You did nothing to earn it. Nothing whatsoever. Bingo, but not everyone saves God. There's nothing you can do to add to it. There's nothing you can do to take away from it. Verse 9, salvation is, is not a reward. Listen, some of you need to hear this. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. Do you hear that? Salvation. Right on. Trying so hard. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. The bottom line is you did not earn it. You did not win it. This was not like you went and bought a lottery ticket. Oh, I won. I'm going to heaven. No, no, listen. You, and you certainly did not deserve it. It was a gift that was given to you. It was given to me. A gift that all we had to do was we just had to reach out and receive it into our lives by faith. That's it. And when we received it, you know what happens? Okay, here's the odd part. This actually sounds very close to the biblical gospel. What's it doing alongside of this Roman Catholic medieval mystic nun who was a universalist? Reach out and receive it into our lives by faith. That's it. And when we received it, you know what happens? It changes us right here. It changes us. It's like we talked about a few weeks ago. I mean, we go from being, being scum. We go from being sin-filled, you know, people who never have a chance in a million years of being, being connected with God to now being people who we, we are now sons and daughters of God. And the implications of that are huge. You know what really changed my life about all of this is when we started having kids. You know, and those of you who have kids, you know, I mean, when babies are born, little infants, they're, they're so cute, aren't they? Actually, they're not always. I mean, let, let's just be honest, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, some are. Some of them look like the little Cheeto Jesus. But, but um, <laughs> hey, this one's not finished. Back in, back in, seriously. <laughs> okay, no. Um, so, <laughs> See, some of you are like, that's because you have one of the ugly ones. Okay, that's why. <laughs> okay, it's okay. <laughs> See, and you, you were at the time, you were like, oh, she's he's so precious. And, like, and, and now you look at the pictures, you're like, Hoo. wow. <laughs> so anyway, so, so you know, <laughs> these infants are born really adorable and innocent and everything, right? Harmless. But then, but then what happens? Then they become evil, don't they? Yeah, they become evil. And what you discover is that these little babies, that all of us, we all have this seed of sin in our lives, don't we? We all have this, this root, root of, of evilness in us. Seed of sin? Root of evilness? We're all dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians chapter 2. This, that, listen, listen, no matter what my children do, no matter what they might ever say to me to my face, 
they will always be my children. No matter, no matter how, how they may reject me, no matter how they may hurt me, no matter how much they may willingly turn their back on me, there is nothing they could ever do that would cause me to ever, ever, ever stop loving them, ever. And I may get upset with them sometimes, and I, and I may want to strangle them, and, and I may, and, and, and some of you are like, yeah, I know. Listen, I, and sometimes God wants to reach down and strangle us, I'm sure, right? But guess what? We're his children, and he loves us unconditionally. There it is again. No, God does not love us unconditionally. By nature, we are dead in trespasses and sins and under God's wrath. God loves us conditionally on the condition of Christ's death on the cross for our sins. And and I may, and and some of you are like, yeah, I know. Listen, and sometimes God wants to reach down and strangle us. I'm sure, right? But guess what? We're his children and he loves us unconditionally. My kids did not earn that love. You didn't earn that love from God. There's nothing that can ever cause us. Sometimes we think, well, when I do something wrong, when I sin, like then I'm sure God, like the level meter must go down a little bit, right? I mean, God, God may, may like 10%, I don't know, 20% or it depends on the sin, right? I mean, because there's those top tier sins, right? I mean, let's get, let's go there. You want to go there? Okay. Cause there's all these rated sins, right? There, there's the, anyway, we don't have to go there, but oh. <sighs> let's just call out our sins right now. And I'll tell you where they fall at in the rating system. Okay. <laughs> oh man. Um, anyway, I have no idea what I was going to say, but, but see that this was, this was the revelation that, that Julian had was, and it's not a new revelation, but it's one that gave her confidence in her salvation with Christ. And that I think further painted this picture that God truly is good. Um, let's go to the next one. Uh, God tells Julian that prayers are inspired by him and please him. Um, this is a beautiful one because I think it, it really, for Julian, it helped answer the question she had of... Keep in mind, this is a sermon preached by a supposedly Protestant pastor. Pray. Hmm? I think that's a great question, isn't it? What good will it do to pray? You ever think that? What good will it really do to pray? I mean, hey, if God wants to do it, he'll do it. I mean, he knows what needs to be done. He's God. Right? He knows. So if he wants to do it, he'll do it. Why, why should I pray? And say, I know a lot of us think this way because if we didn't, we'd pray a lot more than we do. See, Julian believed that prayer has the ability to unite our soul with God. In fact, she believed that not... Prayer has the ability to unite our soul with God. Um, Bible passage on that one, Scott? Here's our prayers. Of course, that, that's, that, that just echoes a passage of Scripture, 1 John chapter 5, 14. Let's read this together, can we? 1 John 5, 14. Here we go. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I love that. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. Do you approach God with confidence? I don't mean cocky and arrogant. Let me read this, First uh, John chapter 5. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the, has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that he that we have asked of him. Doesn't say doesn't teach universalism in first John five at all, does it? Nor does it teach that prayer unites our soul with God. Doesn't say that at all. Trusting that he hears your prayers. Jeremiah, God says this in Jeremiah 33, Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. What a promise. You know, a very interesting realization that, that uh, Julian had was, was that prayer, prayer is not so much about getting God to hear our requests as it is about him helping us to change our perceptions. I mean, think about that for a second. Prayer is not so much about getting God to, to hear our requests as much as, as much as it is about him helping us to change our perceptions. Because sometimes... Yeah, that, that's what Julian told you, right? Well, where does it say that in the Bible? Getting God to, to hear our requests as much as, as much as it is about him helping us to change our perceptions. Because sometimes our perceptions need changing, don't they? Uh, you know, it, was, it was through this vision that one of the statements she made that I think she said it so beautifully. She said that prayer restores elasticity to our souls. Really, where does the Bible talk about the elasticity of our souls? You know, if you ever play uh, Plato, you ever play with Plato? No, I mean, if you haven't, you were really sheltered. Um, <laughs> you know, Plato is fun. And my kids, every time we go to Target, they want me to buy Plato. And, and so I do sometimes, and, and we, we love Plato. In fact, around here, we have creative meetings. I don't know why, but Plato in our hands causes us to become cre- more creative. I don't know. So anyway, so if something doesn't ever work real well, we'll just blame it on the Plato. But anyway, but the Plato, you know, you open that, that can, and you smell, doesn't it, Plato smell great? It's like, it's like, surely you can eat this. I mean, come on, this smells so wonderful. Anyway, <laughs> I'm actually getting hungry as I'm talking about Plato. Wow. Um, anyway, but Plato has this, this amazing texture and you can form it into whatever you want. But if you leave that Play-Doh sitting out for a few days, what happens? It gets hard, doesn't it? It's like, hey, you want to play with the Play-Doh? Oh, can't do it because this Play-Doh is rock solid. See, sometimes I think over time, that's what happens to us on the inside. Right? We, we go from, from being like Play-Doh, really formidable, to sometimes having a little bit of a hardened heart, or we become rigid in some areas of our lives. And, and that's why I love so much that, that she says prayer, it makes us pliable. And the Bible teaches that where again? Oh, I'm sorry, it doesn't. It, this is based upon her vision. She believed that instead of us making decisions and then asking God to get on board with our decisions, she believed that it's best just to get on board with what God wants to begin with. Oh, Blackaby. Yeah, before Blackaby. Nice. That's the same stuff that Dan Sutherland and Perry Noble teaches. Now I know it's not from God. Right. I mean, and I think that's powerful because how many times do we do that? Right. God, here's my plan. Uh, This is what I think I'm going to do. Now, would you bless it? Versus saying, God, what are you blessing? And I want to be a part of that. See, I think it's just better if we see God on the front end so that we can walk in his will. Listen to the words of one of her prayers. Um, This is this is amazing prayer. It brought such conviction to me this week when I read this. She said she said this one time, Lord, you know what I want if it be your will that I have it, 
And if it be not your will, good Lord, do not be displeased, for I want nothing which you do not want. And you know, when I read that, I just thought to myself, God, may, may, that, may I get to that place where I, where I could pray that way? I mean, may, I, may you do something in me that I, that I could pray that kind of prayer. See, the reason she could pray that kind of prayer was because she truly believed that God is good. She believed that she could trust that God's will would always be best for her, that it would always be best for her, that it would always be best for you, that God's will. See, that was her confidence. And we don't have any passages in the Bible that say anything like that, so we have to depend upon this nun's uh, visions. Yeah. That was her confidence. And, and lastly, one other thing about prayer that she believed. Um, Julian believed that prayer is the way we join with God in the fulfillment of his prayer for this world. In other words, there's this, there's this missional importance to our... What? And where is this taught in the Bible again? Oh, yeah, it's not. We join with God in the fulfillment of his prayer for this world. In other words, there's this, there's this missional importance to our prayers, that when we pray, we're, we're connecting with God and what he wants to do in this world. See, at the end of the day, don't you think that prayer, I mean, don't you think that prayer ought to turn us outward at the end of the day? I mean, I mean don't you think that a person who really prays is a person who's going to have a greater perspective about those on the outside, right? I mean, if all prayer does is turn you inside, if all prayer does is cause you to become selfish and focused on yourself, man, I, th- I think we're missing something powerful about prayer. I mean, prayer should take us and cause us to love more. Prayer should cause us to care more. Prayer should, should cause something in us to give a rip about the world around us. Amen? Where in the Bible does it say that prayer is a means of grace? That's what he's describing it as. In one of revisions, Jesus affirms his pleasure in suffering for her sake. And in other words, okay, the, this showing, this, this vision, was her realization of how happy Christ is when, when uh, we understand and truly appreciate his suffering and his passion. One, one author says it this way. Listen to this. Uh, it's, it's from the book um, Longing for God. forgot the title. Uh, it is as if our gratitude and recognition is the only joy God needs in order to feel good about his ultimate sacrifice. Just think about that quote for a second. I know some of you are going, what? Just, just look at it. It is as if our gratitude and recognition is the only joy God needs in order to feel good about his ultimate sacrifice. And I know that might sound kind of strange to some of us, but... Yeah, it just sounds downright goofy. God. But, but what Julian is saying is that, is that we bring joy to God. When we love and serve him simply out of our understanding and appreciation for all that he has done for us. I mean, we bring joy to God when we, when, when we serve him simply out of our understanding. Notice how he's quoting this woman's vision as if it's actually biblical. So long, sola scriptura. It was nice to know you. I mean, we bring joy to God when we, when, when we serve him simply out of our understanding and appreciation for all that he has done for us. I mean, t- isn't that powerful? I mean, God loves it when we worship him and when we serve him simply out of a response for what he's done for us in our lives. 
And so, see, this got me thinking, you know, what if, what if in everything we did, I mean, what if we lived like this? What, what if, what if in, the, in all the serving we do, maybe in church or even in the community or in our giving, in our tithing, in our worshiping, in, in our gathering? What Here comes the law sneaking up on you. To the goodness of God in our lives. Right? But, but see, the, the struggle is, is, is and, and here's the thing, and this is the great thing about God, is he gives us a lot of motivation to do things, right? I mean, he tells us, if you do this, this will happen, right? If you, if you sow generously, you're going to reap generously. If you put me first, um, I'm going to take care of you. I will be your provider, right? I mean, all these great promises, the thing is, like, those become our motivations. Like, well, man, I, I'm starting to struggle financially. I guess I better start giving again at church because I want God involved in my finances. Better start tithing again. See, in our motivation, I mean, and, and, or, or it's like, man, I, I better start praying again because things aren't really going so well. I better start really getting serious and praying or better start going to church again because my, my wife's been really angry at me lately and it's just, just better, you know, maybe God will kind of fix my wife a little bit if I go to church. And, uh, you know, it, it's, like, it's like our motivations become uh, for God to do something for us. And, and I just wonder what would happen if we did all of the things we do uh, with no agenda whatsoever. I love Psalm 107, verse 1 uh, and 2. Give thanks to the Lord, for he will love us more. Hmm? Are you looking? Huh? Some of you are like, what? That's not what it says. Yeah, but that's how we act sometimes, right? Give thanks to the Lord, for then, for then he'll bless my marriage. Give thanks to the Lord, then he'll provide for me. Give thanks to the Lord, then he'll help me in my con- confrontations I have to make this week at work with the people that I don't really like that much. Right? No, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he's good, plain and simple, because he is good. His faithful love endures forever. I love this verse too. Has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Tell others. He has redeemed you from your enemies. It's, it's like, hey, has the, hello, hello, McFly. Listen, has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out, reflect it. Respond to it. Celebrate it. Act like it. Let your life show it. Psalm 13, verse 6. I love this. I will sing to the Lord. Why? Why? Let's say it together. Because he is good to me. I will sing to the Lord. Why? Well, because he loves my voice. Well, honey, I hate to tell you, he's the only one who loves your voice. Okay? (laughs) Your husband don't love it, and I don't either. But God loves it. Some of you aren't laughing at all. You're actually offended right now. <laughs> you, get, you get over it. People are like, what? how come Scott doesn't ever do counseling? Because you'll need counseling after I counsel you. Okay, anyway. <laughs> what was I saying? Oh, I will sing to the Lord. Why? <laughs> because he is good to me. See, that, that to me is worshiping without agenda. Question, here you're pointing some great passages out that talk about God's love and his mercy and his kindness towards us. What do we need the nun for again? Her visions haven't added anything to this discussion. The meaningful stuff is the scripture you're quoting. I don't trust the nun. Okay, anyway. (laughs) What was I saying? Oh, I will sing to the Lord. Why? <laughs> because he is good to me. See, that, that to me is worshiping without agenda. I mean, what if we live that way? See, see Julian of Norwich, <laughs> what an interesting woman. 
See, here's the thing. I, I think amidst all of her uh, descriptive language and, and all of that, of her visions, that, that to most of us sound weird and, and most of us, we feel uncomfortable when we read these kind of things or whatever. At, at, at the core of all of this, amidst all of these things, was a woman who, who, who knew the goodness of God. She was a mystic universalist. She even thought hell was a part of God's love. See, she, she was a woman who didn't just see that God is good, but she, she tasted that goodness. And not only did she taste that goodness, but she tasted it to, to, a, to a degree that caused her heart and her life to, to turn this way, to turn outward as a servant and as a... As a it wasn't God's word. It was her mystical experience. I mean, what, what if we just prayed, and that became our prayer, that God, would you help us to, to not just see your goodness, but would you help us to taste it and to really experience it and to embrace it? Here we go again, chasing after mystical experiences. This is not good at all. In case you, in, in, those of you who aren't already weirded out enough already by the fact that this guy's preaching these women's visions as if they're biblical, there, here we go, here's the hook in our lives to, to such a degree that we too become lovers of humanity, that we too love those who are hurting and who need to taste your goodness in their lives. Well, today, before we go, we're going um, to partake of communion. And uh, All right, I'm going to stop it right there. What'd you think? Folks, here's the deal. We already have God's word. We have the, we have the teaching of the apostles. We have the teaching of the prophets. We have God's inspired word. We don't need visions from nuns or from people like Patricia King or anything like that. And there was enough theology that was way off base to make you go, wait a second, this probably wasn't from God at all. Because all the experiences get tested against God's word, not the other way around. What Scott Hodges pointed people to is complete mystical subjectivity and has opened up people to practices by which they could get in touch with the demonic. Not the biblical God, though. God nowhere in his word promises these types of experiences for anybody, whether you seek them or not. Whether you have pure motives for experiencing them or not. Scary, frightening stuff. I'd love to get your feedback, though. All right, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means in order for us to continue to bring this important outreach to you, we depend upon you partnering with us financially. And the way you do that is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, join our crew. The other says, um, donate. <laughs> Pick one. Uh, join our crew. is uh, It's $6.95 a month. It's not a lot of money. And that's $6.95 a month once we get to 1,000 listeners. That's right. We need 1,000 listeners to, have join, to join our crew so that we can, on a monthly basis, meet our minimum uh, expenditures. And, uh, and so that's, that's our first financial goal is to get to 1,000 listeners who have joined our crew. And again, it's $6.95 a month. It automatically comes out of your account. And you, when you join, you get access to our Pirate Cove, which is our way of saying thank you for joining our crew. And, of course, if you'd like to uh, fill in the blank as to how much you'd like to uh, contribute to our cause, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button on our website 
or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what did you think about having a so-called Protestant purpose-driven thought leader pastor um, telling us that uh, we should just get past our weird ideas and feelings about a Roman Catholic medieval mystic nun and he ended up preaching her visions as if, well, they were the they were the word of God. And they had biblical spiritual truth to offer us. Would love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.